good to see everybody again this morning. Special welcome to all of you joining us online, or if you're checking out a recording of this later in the week. I know it doesn't feel like it outside right now, but it is November. Um, and when November hits, all kinds of things happen, right? We have the time change. That was kind of a big deal. Um, we've got all these pumpkins that are sitting around on our porches rotting right now. So we got this great opportunity for you guys next week. Um, if you bring your old pumpkins, your gourds, whatever, we have a gentleman who has offered to bring a um, pumpkin chunker um, after church. It'll be out back. And you can launch that sucker way off into the woods. Um, and I'm telling you, it's just freeing to move out from that kind of fall um, thing to this new season of Christmas and Thanksgiving as we look forward to that. Also, that reminds me that um, for our Christmas Eve services, we are planning them right now. And as Josh mentioned, we'll do our sort of year-end collection at that point. But um, we're also not sure of the time yet. Um, we're open to anything. So we actually have a survey. If you go to our website this week, you can pick a time throughout the day on Saturday, um, the 24th of December, um, that may fit you well. Um, and we'll kind of look at that and see where everybody's at, and we'll come up with a couple different times during Christmas Eve day so that you'll have the opportunity to come and worship together when it's convenient for you and your family. So that's where we're looking at all that. So anyway, the fall is also all about football. Here we are in the middle of the football season, and I don't know how good your team is doing or not. Um, I know kind of tough around these parts. But we do know this. We know that teams that focus on the fundamentals, they prosper. They go really far, typically. And um, that's the same way in our faith, and that's why we're a church that's truly focused on those fundamentals. We think they're important for each of us individually and as a church to prosper and to grow. And so we remind ourselves of them constantly. We have three of them, um, three fundamentals we primarily focus on as a church. First and foremost, you've got to know what you're doing. Why are you showing up? Why are you even playing the game? Um, and our vision, of course, is to reach the tri-state region and beyond, to make fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And we do that by taking our steps towards Christ day by day. We do not want to be a church that only comes on Sundays and then leaves and then waits for the next week and comes back then. We want to be a church that's about the business of the kingdom every single day of the week. And that's why we have these pillars. And you just heard um, from one of them, Cindy's in the Grateful Hearts pillar. Um, and that's a great opportunity for you to put those fundamentals into action in your life, in your everyday, ordinary, coming and going in life. Second, of course, this is everyone's favorite, um, we are a church with flaws. And so if you look around, you will not find any perfect people here. Um, if you were perfect, you wouldn't need God's grace. But of course, we don't relish the fact that we're screwed up. Um, that's why we say it's okay to not be okay here. Um, but none of us want to stay in that not okay place, which is why we have that third fundamental we focus on, where we love you enough to tell you the truth in the person, words, and works of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we get that truth right out of Scripture. And here we are, focused on this book that Paul's writing, this letter to the church in Ephesus. And we've been focused on this really since like May, so it's been many months now. We just kind of finished up the first three chapters um, on belief. We're kind of winding up the last bit today as we go through this mini-series on this prayer that Paul makes for the church. And the prayer is so interesting because he's praying for so much power to go into this church. And we've been, because it's such an interesting prayer, we've been taking it kind of like bite by bite, almost word for word. And today we're going to wrap up with that little last bite, that last nugget. Um, and then next we'll come back and we're gonna look at the prepare in its totality so that we don't miss the forest for the trees. So in this prayer, Paul has just made three profound petitions for the church. That we might be, first of all, strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. 
And then that's the second petition, which kind of builds on this first one, that being rooted and grounded in love, we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And then the third petition we looked at last week, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Those three petitions, they take us to the peak of the summit, of the mountaintop, of our experience in life. And so what else could Paul do after praying for all of this but to erupt in this doxology of praise? And so he closes his prayer out with, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So I want to begin by asking us to consider this question. Do we feel compelled to join Paul? Have we been moved and thrilled by this possibility in our lives? Or is Christ dwelling in our hearts, knowing his boundless love and being filled with all the fullness of him, not even real to us? Or perhaps it feels like it's only for those pastors or those music directors, or maybe just those good Christians, but it doesn't apply to the average believer. Well, in many ways, this doxology, it serves as a test for all of us. It helps us see if we've experienced any of this in our life. Because if we find ourselves struggling to respond in praise along with Paul, then perhaps we're ignorant of this experience of being strengthened by his spirit in our inner being. Or we're unaware of what it means to have Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. Or maybe we're not rooted and grounded in love. Or we lack the comprehension of the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of Christ's love. Or perhaps we've just never even experienced what it's like to be filled with all the fullness of God. So let's keep these questions in the front of our hearts and minds today as we work through this. Because I'd argue that even if you've only caught a glimpse of this, just a mere taste or a whiff of what Paul is praying for here, we simply won't be able to help ourselves but to erupt in praise in that doxology that he sings right alongside with him. So let's break this doxology now. Paul begins, first and foremost, with an objective praise. An objective praise is a truth that cannot be denied. He writes, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Do you see how Paul, he just asserts this objective truth that God is able to do absolutely anything. And he is able because he's sovereign and he's good. There's nothing outside of his reach. He is the creator and the sustainer of it all. In fact, God's power is so far beyond our comprehension that Paul seems to grasp for the words to convey it. It's almost like he's that little guy up there on this graphic. He's kind of looking up into the cosmos and he's completely overwhelmed by it all. And to see what I mean, notice how Paul asserts that God's ability surpasses what a man could ask. 
meaning God's ability to do things extends far beyond what man could ever even articulate with mere words. But that's not all. God's ability to do things extends beyond what a man could even think. Man's mind can't conceive of even a mere fraction of God's power and his ability to do absolutely anything that he wants. But there's more. God's ability to do things exceeds all that we could ask or think. So this is all of it. Everything within the capacity of a human being to articulate or to imagine. But there's even more. God's ability to do things goes abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. Now, abundance in the original language speaks to excess, so it's excessively beyond all we can ask or we can think. But that doesn't capture it all either. God can do more abundantly than all we can ask or think. So if abundance or excess wasn't enough, Paul speaks to even more excess, even more abundance. But that doesn't seem to quite get us there either, because it can do far more abundantly than all we could ask or we could think. Do you see what's happening? Paul's running out of words here. He's struggling to help us grasp what we're confronted with. Paul is quite simply overwhelmed by God's ability. His ability to strengthen us with power by His Spirit in our inner being so that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. His ability to strengthen us to comprehend or experience along with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, the vastness of God's love. His ability to fill us with all the fullness of God so that we might experience the peak of the summit of the mountaintop. Doesn't that just send chills down your spine? What else could any of us do but to break out in praise? How could we even question in those moments if God is able to help us restore our broken marriages? Or question if God is able to lead us to employment that will help us take care of our families? Or to question if God's able to help us overcome the shame and the guilt we experience in our lives, or to question if God is able to bring our prodigal children home, or to question if God is able to get us through our latest medical challenge. How often do we limit our petitions because we don't grasp the power of the one to whom we pray? What an offense it must be to him when we pray as if God is not able, uninterested, or he's focused elsewhere. Surely he has more important things to do than to attend to my meager requests. Of course, nothing can be further from the truth. Do you guys remember what we studied back in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus taught us? He said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And then the dagger, O you of little faith. So do you see the linkage here? Paul doesn't suffer from this little faith that Jesus taught us about in the Sermon on the Mount. Rather, Paul displays great faith 
in this doxology by professing that God is able. That's why he's made such a big deal about us understanding the mechanism of how this all goes down, that it's by grace, God's unmerited favor, through faith, which is also a gift from God. And that's why Paul prayed that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. But remember, Paul also taught us that it's not our faith that gets us there. It's the one in whom we have faith, our all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, sovereign, and good God. Because when we've placed our faith in Jesus, and we've been saved from eternal condemnation, and we begin to experience all that Paul's praying for here, we won't be able to help ourselves but to erupt in praise too. Next, Paul moves from the objective to the subjective. He moves from us knowing this truth to us actually experiencing it by the very same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead because it is at work within us. So hopefully we've seen it, we've smelled it, we've tasted it, and experienced it in our lives. Because we all start out on that wide, dark path that leads to eternal destruction. Paul knows it all too well. It's perhaps why he calls himself the least of all the saints, because he knows his condition, totally depraved. So do you know your condition? Are you still a pretty good Christian? An upstanding member of the Christian community, well-respected. You pay your bills. You say please and thank you. You limit those curse words, at least in the public. Well, that's exactly what the devil wants you to think, that you're a pretty good person. And if you find yourself there this morning, I pray that you will get on your knees before you leave today, asking, seeking, and knocking that the Holy Spirit might convict you of your sin so that you're aware of your true condition. Because it's not until we realize the depth of the pit from which we've been retrieved, it's not until we hate our gossiping, our lusting, our self-righteousness, and our gluttony as much as God does, that we can experience the transformative resurrection power at work within us. The power that first convicts us of our true condition. Point number one up there, dead in our trespasses and sins, heading for eternal destruction. The power that compels us to repent, to turn from our sinful ways and put our faith in Christ. The power that takes our sin and our shame and places it on the Son of God and has him crucified for our sake. The power that then resurrects Jesus back to life overcoming death once and for all. The power that washes us white as snow and the very blood that Jesus shed for us, justifying us, making us right before God. The power that makes us born again into a new life in Christ, moving from point number one to point number two up there. The power that places the Holy Spirit within us to walk us down that well-lighted narrow path, making us more Christ-like each and every day. The power that strengthens us so that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. The power that also strengthens us to grasp, along with the rest of the church, the vastness of God's love for us. The power that then fills us with all the fullness of God, moving us along from point number two to point number three up there. That's the power that is at work within us all day, 
every day, now and through all eternity. Do you know the power that is at work within us? Have you experienced it? Does it bring you to a state of humility, awestruck by God's power and His presence in our lives? Or have you still not gotten over yourself, still caught up in the failings and the shame of your past, still caught up in materialism, status, and the trappings of the world, still easily tempted by the prince of the power of the air, giving ear to the devil's accusations and lies in your life, still slave to the passions of your flesh, trading God's glory for your own. You see, none of Paul's petitions should ever be thought of as simply a figure of speech. As saints, we can know Christ dwells in our hearts. We can know the vastness of his love for us. And we can know all the fullness of God within us because we have experienced it. It is at work within us. And once we know it objectively and begin to experience it subjectively, we then get to become active participants in God's eternal glory. And so Paul concludes, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You see, we participate in his glory first as members of his church, his body. Let that sink in for a second. We participate in his glory first as members of the church. The church is truly a miracle. The longer you're a part of it, the more the truth of this church and its role in God's cosmic plan becomes so apparent because it has been his plan since before the foundation of the world to unite all things in Christ. It brings together Jews and Gentiles slave and free, male and female, Republicans and Democrats, Fox, CNN news watchers, even they can come together through this. Browns and Steelers fans, all things are united in Christ. Nothing but the power of God could ever bring together reconciliation quite like this. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it so well, he argues, If you think back to creation, when God just spoke things into existence and he said, let there be light and there was light, thousands of galaxies are born, the mountains on earth here, the oceans, the way the thunder works, even the seasons, they all declare God's glory. And yet as magnificent and glorious as all of that is, Martin Lloyd-Jones argues there's nothing that proclaims the glory of God quite like the Christian church, which is comprised of human beings, you and me, that little guy up there on the graphic, proclaiming the glory of God. Do you see why the church is such a remarkable thing? It truly is a miracle. And Paul shows us here that God's glory is also displayed in Christ Jesus, who's the head of the church, that the very Son of God will become man go through all he did for our sake, and now preside over the church. That's why it was so mind-blowing when Paul taught us early in his letter that it's through the church 
that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Seriously, this is truly something for all of us to meditate and marvel at this week. God's using us, his church, to educate the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places about his manifold wisdom. And that's why we keep saying this is cosmic stuff we're focused on here. It's why it doesn't matter how significant or how insignificant the world makes you feel most days. If your identity is in Christ, if you're a servant of Christ Jesus by the will of God, you're a major part of the most significant event in the entire cosmos, and that is the glory of God. And this is not a one-time temporary thing either. It is throughout all generations, forever and ever. In other words, the church will always be there, never-ending, for all eternity, meaning you and I will be there too. And those rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, they're going to marvel in utter amazement at all of this. When they look at the church, they're going to see God's glory far beyond the magnificence of the galaxies. Do you see why Paul breaks out into praise? What else could he do? This is the end game here. This is how it all goes down. This is why we cannot lose hope. Because our God is stronger, he is greater, he is higher than any other. He is able to do absolutely anything that he wants to. And we get to be the fundamental component of it all, active participants in God's glory. So is this picture of your tombstone becoming clearer and clearer with each passing week that we study this? Because we introduced this back in May, and we keep talking over and over again about how our tombstones shape so much in our lives. In particular, that dash in the middle between your birth date and your death date. Is it becoming more and more real? Is it taking on greater significance? Do you have a better sense for why you're here? Because today we learn very directly that it's all about God's glory. Do you see what it means to have your identity in Christ? That's why we keep saying it changes absolutely everything. But above all, it should cause us to erupt, along with Paul, in a doxology of praise. What else could we do? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.